retired state trooper, former NBA referee, author, and the recipient of the prestigious Roosevelt Award. That's one heck of a ride. Thanks for calling in my friend Bob Delaney. What's going on, Bob? All good. Life is good. Did I nail everything you've completed? Because it's a hell of a list. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I uh, was a New Jersey State Trooper for uh, 14 years. Three of those years I was undercover, um, living another persona and uh, running a trucking company in New Jersey along the waterfront. And then um, for 10 years after that, I was still a state trooper and processing all I was going through. And basketball was my therapy. And I did. I ended up in the NBA as an NBA referee for 24 years. And for four years, I was in management as the vice president, referee operations, director of officials. And um, currently, I'm with the Southeastern Conference as the special advisor for officiating development performance. So uh, I tell everybody, I can't keep a job. I just bounce from one thing to another. Let's talk about the amazing uh, award you just got, the 2020 Theodore Roosevelt Award winner. Explain to everyone what what this award means, because, Bob, previous winners, astronaut John Glenn, President Bush, President Ford, Arnold Palmer, John Wooden, Starback, that's a heck of a list. Yeah, uh, very humbling, um, for sure, Mike. My fifth grade teacher would have never predicted this. (laughs) And so um, I, I, I was nominated by... My alma mater, New Jersey City University, Ira Thor, was the um, assistant athletic director, nominated me, and uh, I was selected. And like you said, the, the list goes on. It's uh, 67 people prior to me have uh, been awarded this um, Teddy Roosevelt, President Teddy Roosevelt Award. And it, it's at the NCAA's highest award. It's a person that played at the collegiate level and then went on to what has been described as a distinguished life. And uh, like I said, humbling powerful, exciting, all those kinds of things. And it was a great event that was held in Anaheim, California last month where I was given that award. Is it like the Heisman Award winner when all the old winners are there or no? No, 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 no. It's, um, it, 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 there's 10 other young folks who just graduated from college that are given awards for what they have started to do in their lives. Okay. And then there's an inspiration award and Rocky Blyer got that award. Oof. If you remember the great Rocky Blyer uh, and to be able to spend time with him. And then uh, Stuart Sink uh, was given an anniversary award and um, Dr. I'm going blank. Um, another doctor was given an award uh, for, for her um it was Dr. Carla Ainsworth for the work that she did. And she 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 played at Kenyon College. She was a swimmer and diver, but has gone on to do amazing work in the medical field. And um, it was just one person after another with a story. Danny, Darren Eels. I don't know if you remember Darren. I do not. Darren, Darren played soccer, but he's now the president of the Atlanta United Football Club in the uh, uh, Major League Soccer. Uh the um and, and Rebecca Lobo. So oh, there were some heavy hitters there. Yes, yeah. Uh, of awards, and then the Teddy Roosevelt Award is the last one it's given out as as the highest award. So there's like about 14 awards given at this dinner, and um, recognizing people that have played collegiate sports and have gone on to do other things in life. Now we were going to try to do this last month, but you went to Italy. Was Italy like a anniversary, or it was Italy a celebration of this award? How was Italy? Italy was for, uh, I'm back in school. Uh, I, I, I believe that you have to continue to learn. I'm, I'm now a student again at Harvard University's Global Mental Health Trauma Recovery Program. 
you know the work that I do with trauma and recovery, uh, with law enforcement, military, firefighters, first responders. I've been doing that for four decades. And so I constantly want to be able to be exposed to the new ideas in this field. So I was one of 70 in a cohort that uh, the first two weeks are lectures, uh, classes, projects while we're in Orvieto, Italy. And then it's a six-month program, and we'll finish up in May and uh, probably have a get-together up at uh, Harvard University. Well, I'm glad you brought up law enforcement because I can't tell you how many police officers approached me. They know I had this podcast, and they said they watched you speak a few weeks ago, and you got to get him on. you got to see what he's doing now. He's talking about with military, first responders. He's helping everyone on the mental aspect of the job. And I'm like, dude, I know that guy. That's covert. My years infiltrating the Rob. I I um I read your book a while ago. Can you give a brief brief synopsis of that book? Because I love that book, and that's what put you on my radar. Yeah. Um, so covert. My years infiltrating the mob was a book that was written about my life, and it takes it from me being a kid going into the state police and um, how basketball was a big part of my life, and I played. I was you know played basketball and baseball at the high school and college level, and then went into the state police in New Jersey was asked if I was interested in doing an undercover job. I said yes. They told me it was a six-month job, like we were going to end organized crime in the state of New Jersey <laughs> in six months or something. I don't know what the heck they think. But um, went on for close to three years of my life. I became the uh, – I infiltrated the Genovese and Bruno crime families. I was the president of a trucking company called Alamo Transportation. There were three FBI agents and other state two, two other state troopers involved in the undercover job. I was the president of the company, and so I get to spend a lot of time with the informant, who was a guy by the name of Pat Kelly, who was involved with the Bruno crime family, and he walked me into a lot of places, and I developed the relationships, and we locked up uh, close to 100 people in this job over the years um, and, and, and put away uh, some significant organized crime figures, so it had an impact, but the impact that was greater was on me because everybody was telling me I was this tough guy and that I could because I infiltrated the mob and I was getting awards and being paraded around. I testified before the United States Senate, gave a briefing to Congress. All these kinds of things are going on. And yet inside, I knew I felt like a hypocrite because the entire time I was undercover, I was scared to death. Uh, yet people were telling me I was something that I didn't believe I was. So this, this, this roller coaster ride of emotions was going on inside of me. And the only thing that gave me a piece was like, being on a basketball court. So I couldn't play anymore. So I started refereeing. And uh, one thing led to the other and opened up the door for me to get to the NBA. But that story of Colbert, I think, is more a story of, while so many people relate to it when I tell the story, I say it because it's not my story. It's our story. Anybody that's been in these kinds of positions as a cop, a firefighter, military, first responder, you know that People make you out to be bigger and badder than you are because you're just the person doing a job to the best of your abilities. And you're scared to death to too. But what I came to understand is that courage is doing things in spite of the fear that you're feeling. And all too often we confuse that. And, you know, I, I was painted out to be this tough guy, as I said, <clears throat> excuse me. 
But they didn't see me at two o'clock in the morning walking around my house with my service revolver out, pushing shirt, uh, shower curtains back because I was afraid they were coming to get me. So, Bob, you, so you the knew paranoia. You, yeah, you knew. Did you know you were going through PTSD, or did you? Did that impact your life? Because you know, when people go undercover, oh, that's my new thing. You know, these guys. Oh, I'll do a movie role, and I'm I'm Jim Morrison. Did you realize? Because you were a young dude. Did you realize right. you were going through PTSD while it happened, or immediately afterwards, or no? No, no. What happened was uh, post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't even a diagnosis then. That didn't come to 1980. So this was the late 70s. Um, so I, I started going around speaking at different police academies, telling them about the undercover job. And I happened to run into Hank Campbell, who was my psychology professor at Jer New Jersey City University. And he and I started doing some informal therapy. He was the first one that said to me, Bobby, what you're going through is post-traumatic stress. They said, hey, get the hell out of here. What are you talking about, post-traumatic stress? Hey, you're a that's tough a cop, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'm also thinking that's a military thing. I'm hearing about guys coming home from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. That's not me. I, I'm a state trooper. I, 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 I can handle this stuff. And it wasn't until um, I got to talk to uh, one, of, one of the guys that was on a security detail for me because there were death threats. I started to notice that there was something different about me. And we, you know, I, I have to go out and do surveillances or testify in grand juries early on when I had the security team on me after I surfaced from doing the undercover work. And John Schroth was a detective who had a background in psychology from Rutgers University. And for something I wanted to get over and get away from the undercover work. Yeah. I was going back to being that guy. I was going in to testify with the leather jacket on, with the chains and the pinky ring. And the prosecutors are like, we can't put you on the stand. You look more like them than them. <laughs> I mean, it's like, so I wanted to go back to my new, what was my new normal, right? I, I wanted to just be like, feel comfortable. And what was comfortable was Bobby Covert, not Bob Delaney. So it was fading back and forth. And if we stopped out at a bar after a surveillance or something, mm -hmm. I'd start buying everybody drinks. And because that's what Bobby Colfred did when he was in an undercover job. And John Schroes, the detective, said to me, pal, what are you doing? That's not Fed money anymore. That's mortgage money. You're hurting yourself. Wow. And I pushed myself away from anybody that was uh, willing to talk to me. Louis Free was uh, a street agent at the time, worked in the FBI, uh, became the 15th director of the FBI, if you remember. But Louis uh, knew my investigation, had worked on it. Also knew Joe Pistone. He introduced me to Joe Pistone, Donnie Brasco. Of course. And after the first time I talked to Joe back in the day, I looked in his eyes. I read his body language. He knew what I was going through. And that was my first introduction to peer-to-peer -peer conversations. I used to call it peer-to-peer -peer therapy, but I remove every medical-sounding term because, from my view, we've over-medicalized this subject, and we are scaring people away from it. It's been around forever. Sophocles wrote two plays about the warrior not knowing how to act after coming home from battle. We called it Soldier's Heart after the Civil War. It was called Shell Shock after World War One, Battle Fatigue after World War Two. After the Vietnam and Korean Wars, it was referred to as flashbacks. So this is not something new. This is not a mental condition. It's a human condition. It's, human beings go through these things. Um, Post-trauma is is inescapable we have trauma in our lives there is going to be a post-trauma how we interact with that and if we have education and awareness about it i believe we can interact with it even stronger because we've done it with hiv aids we've done it with alcohol we've done it with drugs mm -hmm. education and, and, and awareness works the more that we talk about this so my belief is that 
as part of training for every cop, they need to know about post-traumatic stress. And they need because to know we're it's putting okay. Them where, yeah. yeah, because they're, we're putting them in where, where trauma is. They go to trauma. Military goes to trauma. We've got to create the training. The same way you know how to uh, uh, assault a building, the same way you know how to hit a house, the same way you know how to break down a weapon, you should know about post-traumatic stress. And you know, Bob, they always say uh, no one ever calls 911 when they win a lottery or it's something good. You're always exactly. going to someone at the worst of the worst. And that leads me to your book, Surviving the Shadows, A Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress. When did that come out? Where can everyone get it? And uh, I'm pretty sure the title of the book and what we're talking about describes it. Why was this book so important for you to write? Yeah, it was the second book I wrote. It's called Surviving the Shadows, as you said. And the reason I call it Surviving the Shadows is that I believe we all have shadows in our lives. And I, I tell folks, never fear a shadow. Because if there's a shadow, that means there's light nearby. It's our responsibility to ourselves and to each other to help ourselves to that light. So Surviving the Shadows is a, 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 a group of stories from cops, firefighters, military personnel who have gone through post-traumatic uh, stress experiences, share their stories in hopes, because I believe the trauma story helps people understand their personal story, because what is personal is universal. There are no new emotions in this world. It's just about how do we navigate them. But there's also chapters by doctors that I've worked with that help us understand the medical and the psychological impact of post-traumatic stress on our lives. And when I said it, it's not a mental illness. What I'm saying is that going through the post-traumatic experience is not a mental illness. What can happen is mental illnesses, depression, different kinds of anxieties, all can potentially come about if left unattended. So our responsibility, I stopped calling it post-traumatic stress about three years ago. I call it operational stress. The cops that you talk to, I was speaking at the NYPD Police Academy. Mm -hmm. And we called it an operational stress education and awareness because I believe words matter. When we say post-traumatic stress disorder, we're talking about a diagnosis. And we're scaring people away for having a subject about human emotions. By calling it an operational stress, I hire more often than not. Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I can see that, sir. I, I have operational stress. Why? Because we're, in, we're operational. We're doers. We're constantly involved. So if you use words that make sense to those who serve, it opens the door for the conversation. And they always say the most, uh, the two most comforting, comforting words in English language are me too. So once you hear someone else has it, someone else wants to talk about it, opens the discussion, open the dialogue, and therefore we can get a little better, right? Exactly, Mike. Exactly. Bob, where'd you grow up originally? I'm a Patterson, New Jersey guy. I uh, grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. I went to uh, New Jersey City University in Jersey City. I lived down the Jersey Shore during the times that I was a state trooper. Then I moved to Florida and uh, been bouncing around. I did live in New York City during the time that I was the vice president uh, referee operations for the NBA across the street from the United Nations on 48th Street. So I was in the most protected area <laughs> uh, of, of, uh, of the world. The, the New York City Police Department. I, I've had the honor to work with police departments around the world. And I and tell folks all the time, New York City Police Department is the best police department I've ever worked with. Amazing men and women serving on that department. What made you want to become a good guy and join the state troopers? My dad was a trooper. Oh, so I just... Grew up in a, I grew up in, yeah. a, in a house, and, and, and it never struck me as a kid. 
I didn't want to be what my dad was. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that was a scary job. And, you know, like I said, I'm no tough guy. And um, (laughs) I'm like looking and saying, this is crazy, man. Are you stopping cars and going into people's houses? That's not for me. I I thought of myself as being uh, a high school teacher and a basketball coach was probably where I was going. And then for some reason, about my sophomore year in college, I had this urge to serve. And it was about seeing this as service to the state of New Jersey, service to the community. And um, it, it, it was such a draw to me that I left in my senior year because the state police had not given a test in two years. And I was afraid if I stayed another year in college and they didn't give a test for two or three years, I, I'd miss out. And so I, I left in my senior year. I tell the players in the NBA, I was like them. I came out early. <laughs> the Differences. I came out early to be a cop, not to get not to play in the NBA. Jersey State Troopers, some of the best, most intimidating and sharp-looking uniforms in the country. But you got to tell the history of the shield because I love the history of the shield of the State Troopers that won on the hat. What's so special about that? Yeah. Um, so the New Jersey State Police was founded in 1921 by Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the father of the famed General H. Norman <laughs> Schwarzkopf of the Gulf Wars. And so General Schwarzkopf, we knew, you know, as a major and as a lieutenant colonel and colonel, he would be around the state police representing his father. We have Schwarzkopf's everything. We got Schwarzkopf awards. We got Schwarzkopf buildings. And there's such an honoring of uh, the colonel who started it, but also the pride that we have of his son. And that outfit, as you said, has been he, he, brought, he was a West Point guy. He brought all the West Point kind of training down to the state police at Seagirt, New Jersey. Well, first at Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, West Trenton, New Jersey is where the first training took place. But that uniform is a very military-style uniform. And um, back in the day, it was boots and britches with the long overcoat. They looked like German stormtroopers coming at you, mm-hmm. asking for your license and registration. But the um, the shield is different than most departments because ours is on our hat. It's a hat badge. And it's a triangle. And um, it's honor, duty, and fidelity are the different points of the hat. And that is what is taught to you in the academy. It becomes part of your DNA in that organization. It's 23-week resident training. When I went through, I think it's longer now because they get off on the weekends or at least a day. But um, it's an intense resident training. And the disciplines that are instilled there and the values that are instilled I know served me to this day today. I mean, I look back, it was sitting across the dining room table from my parents, being raised by a village with my grandparents, aunts and uncles and the New Jersey State Police that gave me the values that carried me throughout my life and carried me through that undercover job. Because working undercover, I tell people, it's like being, you know, when you're on the street, it's like being in a toilet. And if you stay in a toilet long enough, you're going to start to stink. You need to have your... Uh, morality that that um, sense of knowing that you understand right from wrong because you can start blending things and start rationalizing and start going in down a path that maybe you can justify in your mind that can take you to bad places and um, cops understand what I'm talking about when I say those kinds of things you're this young strapping state trooper, one to two years on the job, and I know up here in New York that's some crappy foot post or a traffic detail. How'd you get the opportunity to get this insane undercover gig? Like, how'd they sell this to you, Bob? 
Yeah, um, <clears throat> what happened was um, it was a heck of a gig back then. We, we worked two days on and two days off as troopers. We lived at the stations. We were local cops for towns that didn't have their own police department, as well as doing miles and smiles on the highway, giving out tickets and handling the accidents. So I, my first station was Flemington. Then I went up to Newton. Every six months, you got transferred. My third station was Somerville Station. And, you know, tell folks, you start getting cocky with a year on a job. Yeah. <laughs> you, think, you think you got this thing down, right? You, you, you know, you look back at yourself and you're a fool. But um, I walked in after two days off, and it was a note. In, in, every state police station looked the same. You walked in, it was a police station. But on the second and third floor were bedrooms where troopers lived. So it was two troopers every room. And then downstairs was our kitchen, um, TV room. It was a house, pretty much like a firehouse. And I walked in after two days off into the squad room. And you know how they make try to make you feel good about yourself, Mike, right? You got a cubbyhole with your name on it, like that's your office. <laughs> and I walked over to my cubbyhole and I got a note to call Lieutenant Jack Liddy, Division Headquarters, Criminal Investigation Section, Organized Crime Group. This guy had more titles next to his name than I ever heard. And it wasn't common for a general road duty trooper to get a call from division headquarters. And, Mike, I grew up Irish Catholic. Mm-hmm. That means I wake up guilty in the morning. I thought I did something <laughs> wrong. I thought I had a problem on my hands. I'm like, I got The Bob, older guys are like, relax, yeah, kid. Give the guy a call. You Bob, you're, give a ticket to a <laughs> you're thinking of every ticket you're giving. Oh, my God. Did I give his mom a ticket? Did I do this? Everything you exactly. possibly. Yes, yes. Okay. Exactly. So you give the call. Yeah, because it's true. So the older the vets say, you yeah, relax, kid. Give the guy a call. You probably gave a ticket to a mob guy who works here in an ice pond. <laughs> I called him. He said, you're going to be in for a while. I said, yes, sir. He said, um, I'll meet you down in the kitchen about an hour and a half. Every, you know, troopers, you know how every cop can talk to another cop? It's really any, every profession can talk to another person in that profession and understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he said the kitchen, I, I, there's no, I know he means in the station downstairs. So I... About an hour and a half later, I walk in. There's this intimidating figure. Lieutenant Liddy's about six foot four, got meat hooks for hands, the kind of guy that hangs on his lapels when he talks to you. He's also the kind of guy that the button on the shirt has never met the hole on the shirt, right? He's wearing a 16 when it's still should be a 22. <laughs> and he looks at me and he talks to me for a few minutes and then he says, You interested in doing undercover work? I said, Yes, sir. He said, And he turns and walks away. I said, Lieutenant, what is it? Drugs, narcotics? In fact, then all we're doing is buy bust on the street. He said, you keep asking questions, you're going to be out of the running. Over the next three weeks, I learned that the President's Organized Crime Task Force, the FBI, New Jersey State Police, were joining forces. We were going to start our own trucking company on the waterfront in New Jersey. I became one of those undercover guys, and that took me on a path uh, to where we are today. I, I want to know, this is more of like a law enforcement question. How did you quote-unquote resign? Because you weren't like, oh, I'm going to wear plain clothes today. You legit resigned from the troopers. How does that happen? How do you check in? How do you get paid? How does all that stuff happen? Yeah, it's um, it was a very uh, complicated operation and uh, very sophisticated for being in the 70s, to be honest. Um, and it was a lot of money being thrown at it. It was over a million dollar grant. So a million dollars in 1975 is a major commitment by uh, the law enforcement community. What had happened was in the state police, there's a personnel order that comes out every day, either announcing a variety of things. It's the Bible. And on April 9th, 1975, it was announced that I had resigned from the New Jersey State Police. I left the station in the middle of the night. The lieutenant came up, got my gear. Uh, normally, you would sign out on the book. Mm-hmm. No signing out. I'm just gone. And, um, you know, you know how cops are. I mean, nobody's going to let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> the rumors so, started flowing. 
exactly. So <laughs> you, you almost didn't have to start your own thing. I mean, they had me locked up, and it didn't. And people are hard pressed to understand in today's society because they, there was no social media. There was no googling. Information came by teletype, <laughs> so yeah, it was easier to do this kind of thing back then. You could hide. Um, you could hide in plain sight. And I took on the identity of a child that died at birth. As most people oh. probably are aware. That, uh, well, well I was gonna, are... yeah, I was going to ask Bob because that's the worst undercover name ever. It's covert. So I, I thought yeah, it was. I yeah. don't know if it was a joke or a play on words. So oh, so yeah, it, a child it becomes of... a play on words in in, in the two thousands. Mm-hmm. But uh, early on, my I took on the identity of a child that died at birth. If you go to the birth records. And death records are not cross-indexed in our country. So if you go to the death records and you find someone with the same first name, same ethnic-sounding last name and age grouping. So we found Robert Allen Covert. Covert can be Irish, uh, could be German. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up Irish Catholic. You know, the TV kind of undercover stuff where you become somebody else and you start acting like you're someone. No, yeah. that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. you got to be who you are. Allow your own persona to show up in the undercover persona because that's what you know and that becomes more real. We wanted the first name to be the same. So in case I'm walking down the street and somebody says, hey, Bob, at least if I'm with the bad guys, it's somebody saying, Bob, it's the first same name. When you're saying a different first name, it can cause problems. So these are all the the concerns and and, um, uh, thoughts that were going through our head when we're putting this together. It just so happens it becomes covert because back then, Nobody used the word covert. Everybody was called. <laughs> they were narcs, right? They were uh, 007s. They were uh, street guys. Uh, they were special detectives, special investigation. It was those kinds of terms that were used around this kind of work. And so it, later in life, after I surfaced and, um, you know, post-Watergate and the word covert starts becoming more popular. It becomes a military term and then transfers over into law enforcement and it makes for a catchy story with this undercover job because everybody thinks we were trying to be cute or funny, <laughs> but it was really nothing like that. How long into the operation till um, it became fruitful, and how did the mob actually approach you? Yeah, uh, the first couple months were horrible. We did absolutely nothing. And, and, you know, I said very quickly that it was the president's organized crime task force out of Washington, the FBI, and New Jersey State Police joining forces. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how, how smoothly that thing ran. Of right? course, got yeah. These, uh, well, well-oiled machine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's everybody's fighting for a position. I'm not going to listen to an FBI guy. The FBI guy's not going to listen to me. We're fighting over who's going to open up the trucking company in the morning. That's the important stuff to us. Like we're we're all trying to have a pecking order. And um, it wasn't until we became a team, until we all like started working together, and then we got lucky in the investigation. Like every cop knows, you get lucky. Mm-hmm. A guy by the name of Pat Kelly, who I mentioned earlier, was a uh, concierge with the Giorgio crew of the Bruno crime family jammed up. The feds had cases on them. State had cases on them. He's either going to go to jail or come to work for us. He came to work for us. And he's the one that schooled us in a way, this wise guy, right? Cause our first trucking company was mid Atlantic air sea transportation. And it was, uh, on, uh, 941 Fairmont Avenue in, uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey at the entrance to the port of North. We had one 16 foot truck, a van, and a station wagon, and we were wondering why organized crime is not knocking <laughs> on our doors, right? It's a big operation of cops, but it's nothing to the world. And so Pat sat down, and we were five co-owners, the three FBI's and myself and the other trooper. We listed ourselves as five co-owners of the trucking company because we were being politically correct. Mm-hmm. And Pat said, 
what are you guys doing with this trucking company? He said, I never saw the bus going down the street with five bus drivers. Somebody's got to be in charge. So it was deemed we start a new trucking company in the shadows of the Statue of Liberty on Computerpool Avenue in Jersey City. Uh, I became the president. The other uh, undercovers took on roles within the trucking company. And um, Pat Kelly became the vice president. And we got two new partners, the Genovese and Bruno Crime families were kicking back 25 percent. Our trucks were making three runs to everybody else's one run down on the Port of Newark. And at one point we had close to 20 trucks hauling for us uh, around the country. The crux of this interview is, you know, PTSD and what it can do and how you can help. Mentally draining. I couldn't even imagine what you're going through. Were you able to have any relationships with, you know, females or even friends at this point? Or was it just an all blur to you? Yeah, it was all a blur. I mean, there were relationships that were so far distant and off to the side. Um, but I wasn't able to go home. I wasn't able to, you know, it wasn't only me. The other end, uh, undercover is the same thing. It was like, but at least we had each other, right? So you had that sense of a team that was was taking place. And um, that was an important part of it, as well as Lieutenant Liddy was our point person. And he had a business, an undercover business in Newark, New Jersey, that made sense for us to go. If you went into that office, it looked like a regular office, but behind the scenes, he, he had it set up where he could listen to what was going on in a trucking company. I mean, the electronic surveillance was off the charts for that time frame. Um, just to give you an example, I could, because it was all pay phones back then, right? No, no cell phones. Mm-hmm. I would go to a pay phone. I dial an 800 number. It would come on and say, a recording would come on and say, this is a non-working number. Please hang up and call again. I wait about 15 seconds. I put in a coded number. That would activate the recording devices in the trucking company wow. so that I could have a consensual recording without having to have a wire on my body. And um, so they had taken all the walls down in the trucking company. The FBI and New Jersey State Police Electronic Surveillance Units came in, in the middle of the night, took all the walls down. Same thing in my apartment, which, which you know, it sounds great. But you're very careful about what you're doing in apartments. <laughs> you, you know everything is on tape and you know everything is being watched. So um, everybody thinks I had a great time. It wasn't a great time. Trust me. Finish up on your mob life. How long? I know you said three years operation. How many arrests? What was the outcome of everything? Yeah, we the first hit took down about 30 on a raid uh, in, in, um, in, 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 in New Jersey. And uh, then there were hits that were taking place in New York and uh, Philadelphia, Florida, up into uh, New England, even in Canada. And so over, over the course of this investigation, I stayed with it probably for another five, six years, where that was my sole responsibility, either testifying in court cases, grand juries, uh, trials breaking down um, um, video, uh, excuse me, breaking down the um, uh, transcribing and doing all that kind of work. So, and then the spinoff cases that came, because you know how this works. One guy's Somebody's flipping. Yep. another informant. Of course. Right? I mean, we're going to flip and flip and flip, and that's all we kept doing. Every, everybody's a tough guy until they get in the back, uh, <laughs> the back office of the of the police station, and then everybody's going to—they're all talking. Everybody wants to tell you a story. Hey, Bob, how about the best scam the mob had that actually impressed you? That you're thinking, "Holy crap, that's actually a good idea." Oh, they had—they had amazing stuff. Like they came to me one time and wanted me to uh, buy a, a tow truck, and that we'd paint it. They said we'd only do this for about a week, but we'd score. And um, we painted into the official police towing truck of Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> and we go around to all the locations where the businessmen are. And um, 
taking those two hour lunches and we'd hook up all the Cadillacs and the big cars and take it down the road. And they said, you can imagine that the cops will be stopping traffic for us because they'll see the local police towing truck pulling these things out of here. We'd be stealing cars left and right. The wow. same thing when the Meadowlands opened up. If, um, you know, you're too young, but the Meadowlands, when it first opened up, had valet parking out front with guys in yellow jumpsuits that said valet. And well, they, yeah, they wore the valet stuff, guys, I bet. <laughs> wise guys put in some young Turks up there <laughs> in those yellow jumpsuits. They would only go pick up the cars that were like the, the, the high-end cars. They'd be out on Route 46 before you know it, <laughs> being pulled down the road. I mean, their minds are always about scamming, mm-hmm. and it's always about figuring out how can we make a score. And um, but, you know, on the waterfront with all the containers that were there back in the day, it's all it's all computerized now. But back then it was in a book. It was being moved from one part to another. That thing would be gone for about a month before law enforcement even knew it was stolen. How mentally can you go back to regular uniform work if you did? Did you go back to regular uniform work? No, I was made a detective um, afterwards and worked in organized crime bureau. I would put the uniform on. Because it was important to me. Sure. I was looking for every reason to put the uniform on. It, it, it reconnected me back to that organization, to to the values. You know, that's what's pretty good about being a, a uniform cop. That uniform can represent a lot of positive things for you. And so, um, you know, for an FBI agent, they really don't have anything other than their credentials. And so I, I, I always felt for those guys because us putting back that uniform and being in 200, 300 other people with that uniform on mm-hmm. gave you a, an understanding of what you were part of. And so that was important <laughs> to me. But, um, no, I, I, did, uh, I did detective work um, in organized crime. Then I went into the Intelligence Bureau. And my last year as I was at the uh, State Police Academy, I ran a uh, – in the Criminal Science Unit, I ran the Institute on Organized Criminal Groups. We expanded from traditional organized crimes and went into gangs and, and – um, you know, cycle, uh, motorcycle gangs and uh, street gangs and became more aware that organized crime was well beyond the traditional organized crime, the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, whatever term you want to give to it. I want to talk quickly about your MBA career because most cops I know retire and they either relax or they do a little security gig. You decide to go ref. You don't ref high school. You go right. You climb the ranks, go to the NBA. How about the first time you're in an NBA arena officiating with the bright lights? What's your welcome to the NBA moment as a referee? Yeah, I was um, a referee in, 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 at the high school, and then I moved into uh, the summer pro league. So I was working at Jersey Shore for summer pro league when Daryl Garrison, the director of officials for the NBA at the time, saw me, offered me a position in the Continental Basketball Association, which was the minor leagues, now called the G League. Mm-hmm. Um, so after two years there, I was offered a position full time. And, and my mother was all panicked because, like, <laughs> you're going to give up your pension. I don't want to hear about you giving up your pension. So I, I, I vested my pension to make her happy in the event the NBA thing didn't work out that I go back to the state police. And so I, I get my payment uh, once a month from the state of New Jersey with my pension. But uh, the NBA the gig uh, opened up with me in 1987. I, I, and what was cool, Daryl Garrison knew I was from New Jersey at the time, um, you know, p- made sure that my first game was at Madison Square Garden. Wow. There were only two referees my mom and dad were there oh. my sister and family members so it was a, it was a great experience and um over the course of um, time though you came to learn that when you're a referee 
just like you're a cop. Sometimes you're out there by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a game. My mother loved the Knicks and um, loved Patrick Ewing. <laughs> and I called horrible foul Patrick Ewing <laughs> one game. And I guess like the little boy in me looked up. She was sitting in the stands. We had really good seats underneath the hoop. And I look up and she's waving her hands at me like that was a bad call. It's like your own mother turns on you in this business. So I'm glad we talked about NBA. You did over a thousand games. You did NBA finals games and everything, right? Yeah, over 1,500 um, NBA games, 210 playoff games, nine finals, two all-stars, refereed in China, Japan, Dominican Republic, um, NBA games all over the world. Now, I want to fast forward because we're having a lot of fun, but I want to talk about something really, really serious because the role you do when you speak to first responders, military, all those people is you talk about the suicide thing. It's rampant with law enforcement, military, your book, or what else can we do to help that? Because it is everywhere. That's all you read. Uh, you know, military guy home kills himself, police officer kills himself. What do you think is causing, you know, I guess the abundance of it right now? I think there's a couple of things that are taking place. And um, I, I tell a story in my book, Surviving the Shadows, of a suicide that takes place. And the hardest thing I ever did, uh, five years after the suicide took place, uh, Jim Gallagher, a gunny sergeant, a Marine, 17 years, an amazing, great American. His wife, Mary, they're, they're, they're kids from the suburbs of New York. And just great American story. Jim comes home after a deployment in Iraq. They're, they're stationed in Pendleton at the time. Mary takes the kids to Disney. They come back. They found Jim hanging, hung himself in, in the uh, garage of their home. I wanted to tell that story because I think it's important. My belief is that many times those who serve um, find themselves to be a burden to their family find themselves with all that they're going through and thinking that there is no way that this is ever going to get better, that they do the final intervention on themselves in hopes of making life better for those they love. But I wanted to show and tell the story of what happens after they leave so that any cop, military personnel, firefighter, anyone who serves sees what takes place to that family. And the hardest thing I ever did for five hours, sit at that kitchen table and five years after Jim had um, committed suicide, have Mary tell that story. But I, I know it's an important story to tell because that's part of what it is. The other part is I, I think that this peer-to-peer conversation, this willingness to have open conversation, when we make believe that these things don't bother us, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, hey, for my generation of being a cop, and I'm sure it still goes on today, uh, when when he sees tough stuff, we make jokes about it. Yeah, and I get that part of it. That's part of being able to get through it. But then it's go to the bar and drink it away, and or in some cases, unfortunately, use drugs to mm-hmm. push it away. Uh, you know, the self medication is is causing for things to spiral out of control. And also, it, 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 it's no secret, cops have on their hip the final intervention. Uh-huh. And, so and it's, it's instantaneous. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly. Oh. It's quicker. It's there. It's so these are areas, but we've got to talk about it, Mike, like shows like yours, mm-hmm. like the academies. This is stuff we've got to talk about when you first come in, not about 10, 15 years later. It's got to be part of what a rookie's going through mm-hmm. of understanding. And the, and, and the old timers got to be willing to tell their stories because their stories are powerful and rich and understanding how they process and if they process it in a wrong way, 
that's okay to talk about too because that's helping somebody understand you learn from positive and negative you can learn from negative as well this is not going to help you man sitting around drinking a freaking six pack mm -hmm. on a ride home and then sitting down with a bottle of a jack in order to get through what you saw that day that's not going to make it better it's only going to make it worse how about this how about some characteristics people are affected by that maybe family and friends and coworkers can look out for yeah, I, I think there's a withdrawn, you know, obviously the telltale signs of, of post-trauma um, are um, uh, paranoia, anger levels increase, frustration levels increase, uh, withdrawal from being around anybody. You know, it's easy in our society today. I just get on my computer, right, and I look like I'm busy, mm -hmm. but I've withdrawn and I'm not talking to anybody. This willingness to have the conversations, the willingness to listen to people. That's what's important. We've gotten away from that. You know, I, I've been involved in this thing for four decades, as I've told you, and the studies that have gone on. One of the, some of the studies that have taken place is what's the difference between today's military and World War II? Well, World War II, they were on ships coming home for months. They were processing with each other in conversation what they went through before they got home. Today, 36 to 48 hours, uh, you're off the Main Street Baghdad or Main Street Kandahar, and you're mm -hmm. on Main Street USA. There's no processing taking place. A cop after I, I had this happen after talking to cops and firefighters uh, at the on the pile in 9-11. One firefighter got all pissed off at me. and said, what do you want me to do? You want me to talk to the guy next to me? He says, you want to know what my day is like? My day is 12 hours on that pile. And he says, I get off the pile and I drive home and I'm in that car for 40 minutes and I cry the entire time. And then when I pull in the driveway, I turn off the tears I put on the face. And I give that strength look because I don't want my family to be afraid. Oof. And I think every cop and every firefighter understands what I just said. We hide our emotions. And I'm not saying we go home and say, tell everything. Mm -hmm. But we have to have some safe place to be able to let our emotions out. Mike, I'm going to give you a quick analogy. Mm -hmm. When I do this kind of presentation, I ask people to mm -hmm. imagine that I had a balloon in front of the room full of air. How do I get the air out? I take a pin, I pop it, I get the air out, but I don't have a balloon anymore. I let it go. It flies all over the room, goes out the back door. We don't know what happened to the balloon. Mm -hmm. But if I'm patient, if I'm patient and willing to listen to sounds I don't want to hear, and I turn it upside down a little, little ear out of the balloon, makes that screeching noise. I don't want to hear that. But eventually I'm going to get all the air out of the balloon. I'm going to have a full balloon I can use again one day. That's us with trauma. We need to get the air out of our balloons. There has to be a willingness to tell your story. You have to be willing to tell somebody else because when you tell somebody else your story, you're validating their feeling and giving them permission to tell you their story. We need to get the air out of our balloons. Perfectly said, and I've kept you for 42 minutes, so we're going to finish up quick with some quick hit questions. You ready to roll? Yes, sir. Best Jersey Shore town? Uh, Spring Lake. Ooh, really pretty one. How about best cop movie of all time? I gotta go with Donnie Brasco. <laughs> Joe will be upset if I don't. Best basketball movie of all time. Oh, uh, best basketball movie. What? Um, I guess uh, what was it called? The Ho one with the uh, Hoosiers. Hoosiers. Of I course. Even think of it. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Any memorabilia you kept from the game? Oh, there's tons of it. So I'm looking at. I'm in my office now. You know, I'm looking at my my referee jerseys. Um, uh, framed. I've got uh, basketball from David Stern signed to me. I've got uh, basketball. The, the last game that I had of basketball, all signed by the referees, and um, and then I've got pictures of Kobe and Michael, and uh, <laughs> there's one here with Jerry Sloan and Carl Malone and John Stockton. 
I'm an NBA. Bill Jackson, Larry Bird. You got Joe it all. <laughs> Patrick Ewing. I got I'm very fortunate. Very, very fortunate. We're not going to let you use um, Donnie Brasco. Best bop, uh, mob movie of all time. Goodfellas. I think it's one of the more realistic ones. How about this? Biggest trash talker in the NBA while you played? While, while you uh, refed? Charles Barkley. <laughs> Did he complain the most? No, Danny Ainge com- complained the most. Danny complained about everything. Danny complained when he walked out on the floor. He, he, he was a whiner. No, no, Charles didn't complain. He just he would bark. But he always had some great lawn liners. Most of them you can't tell publicly. Two more. Biggest difference between Bob Delaney and Bobby Colbert? Great question. Um, I think that um, biggest difference between us I don't know that there is, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of similarities, and it was because I became that person. Uh, the difference with Bobby Cover is that he lived his life in fear, and Bob Delaney doesn't. Great answer. I like that. That was a really fear. That's a couple times you mentioned fear, and that's what we all have to address. And let's end it with this. You and I hanging out at a bar. Who's the coolest first person in Bob Delaney's phone that if you pulled it out and texted him, they would text you right back? Um, Shaquille, Charles Barkley. Okay, okay. Uh, you. <laughs> I, I mean, I can go on here. This is. I, I, I could. Uh, if I could scroll that thing, it, I, I'm very fortunate. So, being in the position as vice president of referee operations changed my interaction mm-hmm. uh, with the players and ex-players and, and announcers because I had to do a lot of um, interacting with them. So we developed relationships. Bill Walton wrote the forward on my book. Uh, covert mm-hmm. and so i've been fortunate to be around a lot of amazing people but you know i, I could go down another list for you of marty dempsey general marty dempsey general bob brown four-star generals uh i've been fortunate to be around the great leaders in our society david stern adam silver i work for greg sankey now at the southeastern conference mm-hmm. what a what an opportunity and, and, and for a guy to be you know, in the twilight, I'm around the third head in the home, right? I mean, let's be real about where life is. But to have the experiences I've had and to be around the folks that I've been around uh, just is amazing. Bob, this was an absolute pleasure. Please give it all the plugs where everyone can go to your website, buy the book, and hear you speak and hear everything about you. Please give all that now. Yeah, it's www.delaneyconsultants.com. And um, they can go to Amazon for the books. Uh, but um My speaking gigs are mostly um, private uh, organizations, so uh, it's not like I go into a public forum and speak. (laughs) Most of the times it's in police academies, but um, I'm doing work with NYPD now, which is um, tremendous. Like I said earlier, I I just am uh, overwhelmed being around the men and women who serve us in every facet of life, whether it be law enforcement, uh, firefighters, first responders, and our military and their families. You know, at times we forget about the families and they get hit with some of the shrapnel of the post-traumatic stress that it, that people experience. Thank you for your service, your time. Congratulations on the award. Go Kentucky. I'm the biggest Kentucky basketball fan who's ever lived. So if you want to make some uh, arrangements, make Kentucky <laughs> win. Bob, this was a blast, my friend. Thank you so much. Take care. See you, Mike. Talk soon, brother. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.